When you hear the word Mississippi, what do you think? Well, of course, I think of the savory food, this authentic art and culture, the soulful, endearing people who live here. There's so many brilliant minds and open hearts in this place. Expressive, creative, artistic, intelligent souls. You know, I always feel like Mississippi is teetering on the cusp of something great. I love the city of Jackson. I love Mississippi. Agreed. Mississippi is definitely the birthplace of greatness. And let me guess, you're the greatness, Bo? Hey, you said it. I didn't. <laughs> but seriously, this is where I grew up. I met my wife here, started my family, my business, and learned how to be an entrepreneur. And there is just this insurmountable ball of energy that comes from the people and the culture and even our history that cannot be matched anywhere else. Mississippi's history is definitely unmatched. I don't think there are too many other states who want to contend with our history at this point. It follows us no matter where we go, haunting us like a ghost of Mississippi's past. Hmm. Haunting. Yeah, we're definitely about to go down a dark and sinister path, aren't we? Yeah, but Mississippi's history has a lot of dark and twisty parts, right? I mean, examine our state flag. For a lot of people, it's a reminder of only the dark parts. If it wasn't, then why, for instance, in 2015 at the USA Track and Field Olympic Trials, only 49 flags flew? The Mississippi's flag was conspicuously missing. What does that sound like to you, Bo? It sounds like the entire country views our flag as less than stellar. And as Mississippians, we've heard the arguments that support the flag, like that it's paying tribute, it's about legacy or heritage. But like it or not, our flag comes equipped with a history of hate. And that history is all we can see when that Confederate emblem is waving. It's troubling, it's unfair, because we all know Mississippi and the people in it are so much more than that. For a state with a divisive history, a growing landscape of changemakers, and a future full of possibilities, the burden of hate is just a little too much to bear. I'm Bo York. I'm Shalise Hall, and this is Red Flag. We're about to head down an endless, long, and winding path called the heritage versus hate debate. But I suppose it's necessary to continue with the context of the flag controversy. Well, you know, I do love a good debate. Because debate is blood sport. It's combat. But your weapons are words. Come on in. <laughs> okay, now we've cleared that up. I think Ted Kay, the vexillologist, revealed that Mississippi's flag was changed several times before arriving at the current battle flag design. So the idea of choosing a flag we all agree with is not a foreign concept. And let's not forget that the Confederate emblem that adores the Mississippi state flag was actually created by a South Carolina congressman and formerly belonged to the Army of Northern Virginia. So really, whose heritage are we even really celebrating? Exactly. So why can't we have something with a little less racial animus? You know, a catfish from the Gulf, a Mississippi blues note, the river. The Mississippi River? <laughs> you know, the big one that goes through the whole state. Yeah, I've heard of it. Or we've got a lot of Mississippi artists that have proposed designs as well. That's right. All those would be a much better reflection of the Mississippi that you and I both know and love. To help us gain some insight on the whole heritage versus hate concept, I spoke with Dr. Robert Luckett, the historian and director of the Margaret Walker Center at Jackson State University. My scholarship focuses on modern civil rights movement history, particularly in Mississippi. I wrote a book about actually segregationists and segregationist policies and how they evolved to oppose black advancement during the modern civil rights movement. A lot of my scholarship recently revolves around Margaret Walker, the writer. She founded the center that I run, so I have access to her papers. I have keys to the archive that have all of those papers in it, which is nice as a historian. But yeah, so modern civil rights movement history, African-American history, specifically in Mississippi, that's really my, um, my specialty. All right, sounds like Dr. Luckett knows his stuff. Absolutely. 
We discussed, among other things, the Confederate flag and its association with acts of white supremacy, segregation, and oppression. And it's those associations that make it difficult for all Mississippians to embrace the red, white, and blue banner, complete with the 13-star saltier as our state flag. I always get a little caught up when we talk about this subject. Yeah, Dr. Luckett shared that he too gets pretty emotional when talking about his own heritage. As a white Southerner, a white male Christian Southerner, (laughs) I recognize that it is in fact my heritage. But this argument that somehow our heritage isn't hate or that our heritage should somehow always be painted in rosy colors or um, as some kind of beautiful thing that it must be good because it's our heritage just is, is never set well with me. And so and understanding our history and understanding Mississippi history, the Mississippi flag and what it represents to what I would argue is probably pretty close to the vast majority of Mississippians today is something that is oppressive is something that is rooted in a history fundamentally based in the institution of slavery. There's no argument you can really make about that if you understand the actual historical past. And something that should change, something that shouldn't represent all the people in the state of Mississippi and all of our public spaces. It just, it doesn't do that job. Yes, but not everyone agrees with that. And herein lies the problem. It shouldn't be a problem. The evidence is pretty substantial. After emancipation, African Americans began making social and economic progress. They gave way to history-making moments, like the election of black Mississippians Hiram Revels and Blanche K. Bruce to the U.S. Senate in the 1870s. Yes, think about that. Just a few years after Jefferson Davis abandoned his Senate seat to become the president of the Confederacy, that same seat was taken by a black man. For abolitionists and men and women who were no longer enslaved, that must have felt like a whole new world was being ushered in. Yeah, a new world was on its way, all right. When Barack Obama was elected to the United States Senate, he was the fifth black U.S. senator in American history. We had two from Mississippi in the 1870s, which tells you a little bit of something about the power that these people, freed people, in the immediate aftermath of slavery and emancipation, what they're doing and achieving. And so white Mississippians in particular, and specifically white Mississippi, figured out we got to do something about this. If we're going to regain or what they called redeem our power in this era of redemption— we got to get un- we got to undermine this power and the thing that they found out that they figured out rather was that there was a loophole in the 15th amendment which was ostensibly passed to guarantee uh, the right to vote for african americans but what the 15th amendment actually said was the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged based on race color or previous condition of servitude what white southerners figured out white mississippians specifically was that well can't be denied or abridged based on race color or previous condition of servitude but we can deny or abridge it in other ways poll taxes and ridiculous literacy tests Yeah, almost like, guess how many marbles are in the jar? In Mississippi, we had what was called the Interpretation Clause, where you had to interpret a section of that state constitution to the satisfaction of a voting registrar. Or black folks with PhDs who couldn't interpret it to the satisfaction of white voting registrars, right? And it works, and it works overnight. And the Supreme Court in 1898 upholds that constitution in Mississippi and opens the door for every southern state that had been a part of the Confederacy to rewrite their state constitutions. All of them did so. And they did so based on what they called the Mississippi Plan for Black Disfranchisement. It's painful to believe the amount of energy it takes to oppress people, people who should be your equal. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. It is extremely exhausting, especially learning that the use of the Confederate flag had actually receded, but then reemerged after Jim Crow when the South had grown in white political power as a result of suppressing the vote from Black Americans. And it's in, it's in an era where Confederate veterans are passing away. And it really, the, the Confederate flag itself as a symbol of this hits its height around 
the 1910s. So 1913 in particular is the 50th anniversary of Gettysburg. And it's at the 50th anniversary of Gettysburg that you start seeing the Confederate flags everywhere. And then two years later, you get Birth of a Nation. It's hard to underemphasize the importance of Birth of a Nation as the first major motion picture in American history grosses several million dollars in 1915 is shown in the White House. Woodrow Wilson says it's like riding history with lightning. And the entire story is based around the creation of the Ku Klux Klan and the lynching of a black man. And, and that's it. That's their version of a birth of a nation. And it leads to the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan in 1950. So any hopes of equality, justice, and liberty are just burned in flames set by white hoods and tiki torches? Well, that's graphic, but point made. Now, let's just ponder the stark contrast between the 1950 version of Birth of a Nation, which portrayed the KKK as the hero of the story and the black man as the villain, versus the 2016 version starring Nate Parker as Nat Turner, leader of the slave rebellion. We've been good to you, my whole family. And you go on and do something like this to me, a nigger baptizing a white man on my property. Boy, you'd better say something and quick. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering you again. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness is in danger. Beware of false prophets who come dressed in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. They're waiting on something. They're waiting on us. Parker said the film shared the same title, ironically, but very much by design, because he wanted to reclaim the title and repurpose it as a tool to challenge racism. Which I think African Americans have a pretty good track record of doing that, but back to our regularly scheduled program. So after the movie debuted in 1915, the flag is waving and the KKK begins ascending beyond the borders of the South and grows in numbers. I'm still trying to figure out how to separate the hate component from the heritage when talking about the KKK. It's just not doable. You can't talk about one without the other. Right. And it's a multifaceted history. And here's where I think the underlying foundation of the heritage argument is established. On this, I also spoke with Dr. Otis Pickett, a historian whose area of focus is U.S. history from the colonial era up to and including Civil War and Reconstruction. According to Dr. Pickett, after the Civil War had ended, there was also this lost cause movement to defend the Southern way of life. Uh, it's a um, system. It's a form of civil religion. It's a um, way of thinking about the war, that it was rooted in these causes, right, to protect and defend a Southern way of life. After the war, there's this struggle with what did we fight for? First of all, the South lost, and uh, all the sacrifice was made. And there's this sense in which Southerners feel the need in the 1880s, 90s, especially as they're redeeming uh, government back from Republican control and, and African-American control, this idea to say what we fought for was not in vain, right? That that our that our veterans and our ancestors who died laid down their lives for something that was right. And so the idea of the lost cause was celebrating 
Confederate veterans. It was um, daughters of the Ameri- of the Confederacy erecting monuments in the 1880s and 90s. It was having Confederate Memorial Day to celebrate that for the children to kind of create this memory of their ancestors as fighting for something right and good and true and valuable. Okay, here's where it starts to come together. After the loss of the war, Mississippi goes through somewhat of a grieving period, and Confederate supporters create this urban myth or political propaganda as a coping mechanism. Yeah, and and you really see this concerted effort to remove the Confederacy from the institution of slavery in the lost cause, that it really isn't about slavery, that only a few Southerners actually own slaves, that it really was more about states' rights and more about um, defending our homeland and these kinds of things. And that becomes kind of the narrative of the lost cause. And it's something, I mean, parents train their children in. It's something that is passed down generation to generation. And it's just the thing about it is it's largely uncritical. It's this mythological kind of view of these great heroes and these great men that we need to celebrate and venerate. Basically, you have Confederate supporters changing the narrative of the Civil War, or just casually forgetting the grounds so eloquently stated in the letter of secession. And Birth of a Nation serves as the magnetic force that brings together the association between the KKK and the Confederate flags, among other factors. The Klan becomes a national organization. The largest Klan, Clavern, is in Indiana. That's the Clavern is the main organizational. And the Klan is dispersed, and it's it's men and women. They're women who are now members of the Klan before. It was all white men from the South. Um, and again, it's not just about African-American power. It's about this white Christian nationalism. Uh, and it... it extremely powerful maybe i don't know the exact numbers maybe one certainly one of the largest private organizations in the country at all is the ku klux klan in this period in the 1950s 20s and 30s before really in the 30s and 40s by world war ii you start seeing that that version of the klan die out and we don't get the third reincarnation of the klan until uh the civil rights movement 1960s so between 1915 and 1948 the flag on a national and local level became the undisputed symbol of white supremacy and power. But it, has, it can go unstated. It just flies over a system of Jim Crow, particularly in Mississippi. Specifically, you didn't have to dwell on it, just like you didn't have to dwell on segregation. You didn't have to dwell on white and black bathrooms and train stations, right? It was the reality. It was the status quo. And what really begins to shift this are black World War II veterans who come back from fighting Nazism and fascism to come home to Jim Crowism, right? It's Medgar Evers and Charles Evers trying to go to register to vote in their World War II uniforms and being turned away by a white mob. And these are men who not only have served their country, but have also been trained to use guns, right? I mean, they, they have military training, and they, they are prepared for confrontation. You see this a little bit in World War I, but, the, but the, the power of lynching in particular and the power of Jim Crow was at such a height that it was overwhelming. But it's really World War II veterans coming back in the 40s who are saying, we're going to change this system. And it's not a surprise that you see the rise of not, not a, a new system of white reactionism, because white reactionism has a long history in Mississippi. It dates at least back to the end of the Civil War, right? And a massive resistance as a term for white resistance to the Civil Rights Movement wasn't invented in the 40s and 50s. This has been around for a long time. But it gets renewed. It gets rejuvenated in the 40s. And one of the main organizations to do that on a national level was the Dixie Crap Party. And they would very intentionally adopt the symbol 
of the Confederate flag to use for all those reasons, for, for what it had represented for 50, 60 years. The Southern revolt against President Truman reaches its climax at Birmingham under the state's rights banner. Venerable Alfalfa Bill Murray comes out of retirement to join in the protest against the president's civil rights program. More than 6,000 flock to the Rump Convention to select the presidential ticket. In the forefront of the move are Alabama and Mississippi delegates who bolted the Democratic National Convention at Philadelphia. And according to the history books, well, I guess it depends on which books you have access to, the 1954 Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education forced schools to desegregate. And the Confederate battle flag is adopted by the Dixiecrat Party, somewhere around that exact same time, which thrust the flag back into the limelight as a symbol of resistance to integration and other civil rights efforts made by African Americans. So the Dixiecrats used the flag to reflect their own tweaked version of what the South stood for during that same time. I think that's very well put. Tweak it, right? Uh, how, in what ways can we maintain this way of life? We obviously can't go back to an institution of slavery, but... There are ways in which we can control African-American labor. There's ways in which African-Americans can be incarcerated. There's ways in which whites can be given a, a better position by having access to higher educational institutions of higher learning and African-Americans not. And whites having access to certain jobs because of that edu- education and African-Americans not. And so I think it's doing its best. It com- it's a symbol that communicates, let's do our best to hold on to the values of the lost cause and to, as much as we can, modernize racial control in a way that's acceptable and palatable. It may just be me, but I'm starting to notice a pattern here. The preponderance of evidence shows that the flag is steeped in acts of bigotry and enslavement of African-Americans through violence, intimidation, and unjust prosecution. Right, which is why I asked Dr. Luckett his thoughts on why are there people who fight so fiercely to maintain this flag? Let's understand fundamentally race and racism are learned, and it's learned at a very young age. And in a state like Mississippi, there are generations of people who've been taught this. They've been ingrained with this. And what is a modern phenomenon is that at least until the 60s and well into the 70s, they were taught to be intentionally racist, But since then, we have generations of children who've grown up who are explicitly post-racial, quote-unquote, or believe they are, and they actually believe it. But uh, implicitly, um, it's, it's all about racialized power. It's all about race. And so you have this generation of people who've been taught and who've been educated and who deeply believe mm. that their heritage isn't about hate. And that's what is maybe the greatest accomplishment of segregationists is their ability to evolve in a way to create a language and a rhetoric that has created a generation of people who believe that what they're doing isn't racist, doesn't have racialized impact, and in fact really does. I mean, in many respects, the lost cause won. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's a sad and poignant perspective. Yeah. But as Dr. Pickett mentioned... White nationalism is not just in the South, or inherently Southern. The Confederate flag flies in towns throughout the North, East, and West. Despite how taboo that sounds, it is a national issue. Yeah, and that's, I think, the frustration for a lot of Southerners, honestly, is, you know, we fought these battles. We've been waging issues with issues of race for decades now, and there are many Southerners who are like, hey, we love our African-American neighbors. We want to try to make this work let's lay some of these things down and begin to work forward and move forward. 
but um, the flag gets adopted or co-opted by right organizations who may or may not have any connection with the South whatsoever, who come in and just want to kind of, they see themselves and they see that symbol as a way for them to maintain their control hmm. or their, their fear of losing power. And uh, there are Southerners, absolutely, who, who fly this and who like this symbol. But I think among Southerners, it's less about um, ha- racial hatred and more about, you know, so their history. Now, you know, we need to talk about those issues in the South, but I also think as white Southerners, it's, it's on us to take the charge and saying, no, you can't use that. You're not going to do that because what it's doing is it's sullying Southern history to one particular era and limiting it to one particular era. Well, Mississippians had an opportunity to end this before it even began, but they chose otherwise. And while other states have seemed to evolve, we're still holding on to a time that is marred with the blood of all of our ancestors. It wasn't beautiful. It wasn't uplifting or inspirational. It was tragic and painful and messy. And Mississippi is still resolute in its mission to celebrate this lost cause. I think Dr. Pickett captured the sentiment of a lot of Mississippians, whether they verbalize it or not. You know, symbols matter. And when you have a symbol that is connected with some of the history that I've been talking about, and you choose for that symbol to reflect who you are to the rest of the world, it says something about your values as a society. And I I really think uh, Mississippi is so much better than what it chooses to reflect itself as. And there are those here who are really trying to change that narrative and work hard in racial reconciliation. And when we continue to choose this symbol, you're letting someone else, what someone else does, define who you are. Welcome to Mississippi. Red Flag is produced by Pottery Studios and hosted by Bo York and Shalise Hall. Our music is by Clouds and Crayons, with additional music provided by Lokai and Tiffany. Album art by Tyler Tadlock. This episode was written by Rachel James Terry. Transcriptions by Daisy Stackpole. Special thanks to advising producers Roderick Red and Derek Russell. Be sure to see our show notes for additional credits and links to the stories referenced in this episode. If you want to learn more about how you can support the creation of this podcast, please visit redflagpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at redflagpod.